In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the internationally acclaimed OGGN HSE podcast heard in over 100 company uh, countries. If you appreciate this podcast, and we've had a lot of really nice comments and likes on LinkedIn lately, which I really appreciate, but thank and support our sponsor, Anderson Hauser. Anderson Hauser is a global leader in measurement instrumentation services and solutions for industrial process engineering. They provide process solutions for flow measurement, level, pressure, temperature, analytics, and much more, optimizing processes and efficiency, safety, and environmental impact. They serve many industries across the globe, including a focus in oil and gas. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Today we have on the show J.T. Newman, the president of E3 Environmental. J.T., thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Russell. Well, it's my glad pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you. We're, we're glad you're here. So, JT, tell us about yourself first, and then let's talk about your company, E3 Environmental. Okay. Yeah. So, I got into the environmental industry on a, a pretty infamous day. My first day in the environmental industry was August 29th, 2005. That's the day Hurricane Katrina came ashore. So, that was literally my first day in the door of an environmental company. I was hired as a chemist. Uh, before that, I was working in a chemical analytical laboratory. Now, was, this, was this in New Orleans? So I, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, where I started. Like I said, I came in that morning at August 29th, 2005. The storm was bearing down on the coast at that moment. I signed all of my paperwork, health insurance, life insurance, got you know officially hired, I guess, on that day helped to load a bunch of trailers and went home to ride out the storm. And then the next morning at uh, about 4.30, loaded up at the office there in Jackson, just south of Jackson. And we were headed to the coast with the National Guard and everyone else cutting us a path to get in there. And then after that, I spent roughly nine months in between the Mississippi Gulf Coast, New Orleans, and the Lake Charles area after Hurricane Rita, cleaning up various chemicals throughout that time. So I had a pretty it was pretty much uh, drinking from a fire hose for that first year wow. in, in the industry. I think I interrupted you when you were about to say you had graduated from where? See, I went to undergraduate at Millsaps College here in, in Jackson, a small liberal arts school with the chemistry and biology degrees, and then went on to get a, a couple of master's degrees from University of Mississippi, Ole Miss here in Mississippi, and in biochemistry and chemistry. So. I came on in the environmental industry as a chemist, worked as a chemist for probably 10 years before I came over here to E3 and, you know, did hazmat chemistry. And, you know, a lot of people used to ask my wife what I did. And she said, I really don't know, other than if you see something on television that's burning or smoking, he's probably around there somewhere. So. <laughs> okay, so, really, so I'm not sure I introduced you properly. You are the president of E3 Environmental, right? Correct. Yeah. So in 2014, I came over, an investor had me come, and we partnered to start E3 Environmental. And like I said, in March of 2014, started with one office here in, uh, just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and, and five people. And roughly today, 
you know, 2021, we have about 250 employees and 10 offices across the Southeast. So it's, it's been quite a wild ride the last few years. Wow. Growth. Well, now I'm talking to you in Houston right now, aren't I? No, I'm in Jackson. You're in, in Jackson? Jackson? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Your email or your website gives a, oh, I read this wrong. You know, there there I go again, not doing all my proper preparation for podcasting. I, I saw this industrial park drive Clinton, and I'm thinking of an area in the Houston area that's very heavy. It's a very heavy industrial area, and Clinton Drive is one of the streets, and I just looked at it and said, oh, he's on Clinton Drive in Houston. So, yeah, Clinton, Clinton Mississippi, so that's uh, that's close to Jackson? It is, yes. It's just it's one of the suburbs of Jackson here in Mississippi. It's, it's where we started, but we serve, we really work nationwide and I guess really worldwide at this point. We've recently started doing a few projects that were worldwide. So, but well, that's our good. Main base, yeah, our main base of business is in the Southeast. We have 10 offices from Laredo, Texas, all the way to Savannah, Georgia, and all the way north to Paducah, Kentucky. Okay. Well, and this is a worldwide audience. So, uh, you're, you may be talking to some people that you can serve outside the continental United States. You know, we were actually supposed to record this podcast two or three weeks ago, but you were uh, suddenly called out on one of those emergencies like your, like your wife was talking about. Can you tell us about that or, or would you then have to kill me? <laughs> yeah. So that one was, it was a fire. It's kind of an interesting one. It was a fire at a creamery that used anhydrous ammonia to, for their chillers and their chiller system and their refrigeration system. So they had a very large amount of, of anhydrous ammonia that was involved in the fire and obviously lost their backup systems and whatnot. So we had to go in and figure out how to remove the anhydrous ammonia from the building so it could be demoed and how to get that done safely when the valves had been damaged and the fittings had been damaged and whatnot. So we figured out a way to go in there and and get that done. So that, that was a that was an interesting one. It sounds like it. And and so that tells us you're not just strictly confined to environmental spills or or chemical spills and whatnot just in the oil and gas industry. You serve various different industries? Yes, we serve several different industries. I mean, to be to be an environmental contractor nowadays, you have to wear a lot of hats. So we do we do a lot in the oil and gas sector, including, you know, waste transportation and site work and that type work, fixed facility type work in the oil and gas sector, but we also do the oil spill cleanup side. We do the hazmat side, and then we do a lot of the biohaz and the disinfection stuff, which has become a big issue here lately with COVID, obviously. It says in the show notes, we're going to talk about the importance of choosing an OSRO. So first of all, what is an OSRO and, and why is that important? So an OSRO stands for Oil Spill Removal Organization. So anyone that's in the oil and gas industry that produces bulk fuels, is, it knows about this for the most part. So the Coast Guard has regulations that require you to either have the equipment that is required for the amount of oil you have in case you have a spill or to hire what they consider an OSRO or as commonly known as an OSRO. An Osro company. That Osro, has, and that's and that's oil spill. What does the R stand for again? Removal organization. Oil spill removal organization. Yes. So is that what you are? We are. We are an Osro. And the Coast Guard really gives you two choices. Like I said, you can have the equipment yourself and have the Coast Guard come in and evaluate you for that. Make sure you have the right amount of equipment. Very few companies do that. Most companies hire what they consider a Coast Guard certified Osro that has an Osro number and a rating. And 
the Coast Guard essentially says, if you want to use one of these people that has an OSRO rating, we will do all that work for you. The Coast Guard will come in and verify that we have the equipment, the personnel, the expertise to clean up certain types of spills in certain areas, and they will rate that. So if you can go find an OSRO and you in your area that's rated by the Coast Guard and put that in your plan, the Coast Guard will come in, say your plan, and give you the thumbs up on that. Okay, so that's we're talking offshore if we're talking about the Coast Guard, right? Well, no, it's it can be inshore as well, brown water up and down the Mississippi River, really any navigable waterway the Coast Guard has jurisdiction over. So really, you ha- you need an OSRO if it can get to any navigable waterway, which is pretty much anywhere in the United States, it can get to a navigable waterway. If it can get into a ditch that goes to a creek that goes to a river, then you need an OSRO. Then you need an OSRO. So you should specify one of those in your SPCC plan or? It's, your, it's typically your facility response plan that would be in. But yes, you have certain requirements and the Coast Guard does inspections and whatnot. And there's based off several different factors. And and one of those, the Coast Guard will come inspect your facility. And now the Coast Guard has really stepped up doing unannounced inspections where they will show up at your front gate unannounced and essentially say, this is a drill. You have spilled 500 barrels on the back of your property. Make what your are you going to do now, huh? Yeah. What are you going to do? And there's time limits to that. For example, you're supposed to have boom, containment boom in the water within an hour and then other other resources there within two, three, four hours, depending on where you are and how much you have. So there's certain requirements you have to fulfill for that. And if you don't, there's obviously fines and issues that can come. So do you find companies in these facilities, the safety managers, you know, are are they being proactive in performing these drills before the Coast Guard shows up? It depends on the company. You know, all the large companies, kind of the publicly traded guys and all that kind of stuff, they have people that are just over this. That's usually all they do is regulatory compliance for these types of things. So they will have their drills and they will have their tabletop drills, they call them, where it's just everybody gets in a room and kind of goes through the planning stage. And then you have actual deployment drills where they will actually call the contractor and say, it's a drill, but I still need you to come put all your stuff out and prove to me that you can do it based off our agreement. And we'll go out and we'll do that to actually show that we've got the equipment and it works and it runs and all that kind of stuff. Now, what gets a lot of operators in trouble is they necessarily don't necessarily think they know that they need that, excuse me, or they need to have a relationship with an OSRO and they don't check their OSRO. So, I mean, companies can, can kind of come and go and move and shift resources and whatnot. So it's always a great idea for some of your oil and gas clients to reach out to their OSRO, go, go visit their facility, have the OSRO come visit their facility to get familiar with the layout and, and that type of stuff. You don't really want the first time your OSRO ever shows up to your facility be when you have a spill because then the, we have to kind of figure everything out. At that point, it's better to know, all right, if you ever have a, a spill at this facility, we know exactly where to go, where to put the boom in, where the catch points can be and, and whatnot. Yeah, so this isn't something you, you, you just kind of kind of check the box on and then, and then hope you never have to use it, and then you're completely in the dark when something happens. Well, you know, we have customers that have checked the box and, and they have regretted it, and that's one of the big suggestions we have with clients is really get to know your OSRO, pick your OSRO, and, and make sure that they have what they say they have there and make sure they can perform the job you need. Because when the, when you have a, an uh or a spill or release and the regulatory agencies are there, you really don't want that to be the first time you meet your OSRO because they really need to be able to get there and perform. Oh, I think that's that's an excellent point. So you need to not only visit your OSRO's facility, but you probably need to 
have one of these drills and have your eyes row come out and show that they can do what they say they can do, right? Yes, I totally agree and totally advocate for that. It's and once again, it's getting to know your your Osro. It's just a, it's a great it's a really great partnership. Essentially, is what you end up having with us and our customers. You know, we're their partner. We're there to help them when they have an issue, and and we want them to know they can trust us to have that issue. So we want to get out. We want to see their facility. We want to understand what they're doing and what issues they may have and what potential there is for issues to have, so we can prepare and we can plan and we can be effective when if and when we ever get called to that facility. Okay, now let's talk about the economics of this thing, though. How does that come into play when you're trying to choose an Osro? Well, it kind of goes back to the same thing. You do not want the first time you talk rates with your Osro to be when you have a spill. It's always better to do that on the front end. You can have time to look at the different Osros. You know, obviously use your purchasing power if you have a large facility to kind of talk to the Osros and get some, some things set in stone you know when someone has a spill obviously that's always an unplanned event you don't plan to have a spill you don't you know 99 percent of our customers don't budget for a spill so economics is a factor now part and they usually some of our clients compare our services to a you know a roustabout company or, or some another oil field services company out there and our rates are typically higher and that's several reasons for that is is you know we're sitting on several million dollars worth of equipment in case someone has a spill. For example, E3 doesn't do retainers. We don't do retainer contracts or anything like that. Some companies do. And that was actually that works. That was actually the next question I was, was going to ask you. When it comes to these rates and whatnot, are you on a retainer is you, and you say you're not? And is there anything else you might do on a regular basis where you might have regular billing and whatnot so that you're not just sitting around waiting on an incident to happen or how's that work? Yeah. So we have what we call industrial services and everyday services. And that's, you know, one thing I really try to, to stress to our clients is if you can get your Osro out there involved in your day-to-day work, that really helps them stay afloat. So they're there when you need them. So that, you know, if you can help them have opportunities to bid on the day-to-day work, the tank cleanings or the hydro excavating jobs and the coatings and, and that kind of stuff, those companies can do those too. You, you kind of have to do those to, to keep the lights on and cover the overhead for having that spill equipment there. So, you know, really getting your Osro involved in, in your facility or in your plant and, and helping them kind of keep the keep the lights on is, is a big plus for everybody. Yeah, I would think so. Do you deal a lot with insurance companies? We do. We more deal with insurance companies on facility fires and releases and things like that. It, it kind of depends. The industry's it's somewhat strange in that a lot of the, the large oil and gas producers tend to be self-insured. So they kind of handle all their risk management in-house and their spill response in-house overage with that. But we deal with a lot of the insurance companies. We deal with a lot of the regulatory agencies. We deal with a lot of the funding mechanisms from the government for cleaning that kind of stuff up. So, I mean, on your typical oil spill, you'll have the state agency there. Sometimes you have two, you know, in Texas, you may have the railroad commission or you may have the Texas TCEQ. Uh, yeah. TCEQ may be there. They may, they may both be there. So it kind of depends on who's there. Then you're going to have the EPA is going to be there. And the, then you may have the Coast Guard there. The Coast Guard's usually going to be there too. So, you know, you have four different agencies you're dealing with, plus the plus the customer, plus the insurance agent, plus the risk management from the from the customer. So it, it's, it's always a group effort in those So. In those A good Osro can help you with all those regulatory agencies when they show up. Is that right? 
Yes, I will say in my experience, if the regulatory agency shows up and knows and is familiar with your OSRO and has worked with them before, it usually goes a lot smoother for that. You know, obviously they have a comfort level with OSROs they've worked with before. They know they're going to do the right thing. They know what they're doing. If, you know, if they pull up on a site and they see a company that's never been there before, obviously they're going to be on more alert. They're going to be more, have their presence out there a little bit more to make sure things are getting done right. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, that's their job is to make sure they represent the people of that state or the people of the of the United States to make sure that that is the natural resources cleaned and put back like it was before the, before the release. So, again, we're back to, and it always seems to come down to this, we're, we're back to relationships the OSRO needs to have relationships with the plant, with the facility, and with the people in charge of that. They also need to have good relationships with regulatory agencies, and I guess a good OSRO can help bring all that together when the uh-oh happens, huh? Exactly, and the relationships is what our entire business and industries is built on. At the end of the day, almost none of our customers are hired just to wait on a spill to happen. They have another job. They have another responsibility inside the plant. It just falls on them in case, you know, a spill happens, whether it's HSE or risk management or whatever they may be inside that company. And they need to trust that when they call that Osro and they, that the phone is going to be answered and those people are going to be there when they say they're going to be there. And that's, you know, it's a huge trust that our clients put in companies like ours. And, and then we put in the companies to be able to do, what they need done when they need it done. So JT, obviously some of your customers will have more than one facility. Are you able to accommodate them all across the nation or, or even somewhere else internationally? Yeah, that's a great question. So our physical locations are located in, in the Southeast United States. So obviously if we have a customer that has something in the Northeast or the, or the Northwest or even the Midwest, it's difficult for us to meet those time frames. So there's a couple of different ways you can do that. There are third-party co-ops and organizations out there that essentially will go to customers that have multiple locations throughout the United States or the world, really, and say, what we do is we go gather Osros from all the different areas, and we will go ahead and do that research for you and go ahead and have an an Osro in your area, we will cover you nationwide. And for example, that third party administrator may call a different company if it's in Washington state versus if it's in Georgia, but you just still have that one call. So that is an option for a lot of our clients that are larger to go to what some people call a third party administrator for that. And the other good thing about that, that helps some of our customers is the third-party administrator already has negotiated rates, and then the third-party administrator is looking out for the customer. So they can do, they have the experience in that. So they can be on site. They can make sure they're watching the cost. They're making sure watching the procedures, the methods that that Osro may be using to clean it up and keep the client's best interest in heart for that, and that the client may not have the technical knowledge to know exactly what that Osro is doing or need to be doing. So they can have that expert there to help with that. So do you act, does E3 act as a third party? We typically do not. We have a couple of customers that have asked us to cover them nationwide in Osro. So we have done that on on a small basis, but we typically defer to the larger third party administrators and co-ops on that because we want to be part of their networks just like everybody else. That's what I was going to say. So then you're a part of their network in your particular area and that sort of thing. Okay. So I think we've talked about some of the common pitfalls in Osro client relations. 
you know, like never having met your Osro until there's an incident and things like that and developing relationships. Any other common pitfalls in Osro client relations we haven't touched on? Knowing your Osro is just kind of what it all comes back to, having that relationship beforehand. We have a lot of customers that put an Osro in their facility response plan and then never look back at it. I mean, we've had customers come to us that didn't know their Osro had been out of business for 10 years until they had a spill. And then they have to, you know, look at the regulatory agency that's standing there and said, well, we don't have an, who do you recommend? We don't have an Osro. So typically those regulatory agencies were like, well, here's three or four that we know, but you really should already know. Uh, yeah, exactly. So exactly. It's, it's, you know, one of my favorite expressions, it's too late to take swimming lessons once you find yourself already drowning. <laughs> that's exactly. And you'd be surprised how many people find themselves in deep water on the issues with releases and spills. Yeah. And, you know, that's for everyone listening, that's worth worth the price of admission today right there. And it would seem like just just common sense, but it's unbelievable how that just so often gets overlooked and, and neglected. JT, I want to do one other thing here before we close out the podcast. Take me through the process. OK, so you're my Osro and I just had that, you know, 400 barrel spill or whatever it was you talked about in that, in that drill, you know? And so I'm notified of the spill. The first thing I do is I hit the phone and call you, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, the first, the first, so technically the first thing you're supposed to do is is implement your facility response plan, whatever that is. That may have, that may be a mix of calling us and going there. It may be a mix of your plant personnel doing a few things before we get there to try to, to mitigate the offsite spread or whatever that may be. But the, Typical thing you do is you go through your notifications list, you call your Osra, you get them headed that way with the correct equipment best they can, or to get somebody on site, you make your notifications to your national or state agencies, whichever one's required in your area to make those notifications if it is a reportable quantity. And then you start standing up whatever incident commands you may have within your own organization. So when they get there, everything starts working smoothly. So when the regulatory agencies show up or the insurance agencies show up, you can show that you were a good steward of the resources and you're actually getting work done and getting the problem remediated in a good manner. Okay. So talk to me about good manner remediation processes. What are you doing? You're putting up booms to absorb this stuff. How are you cleaning this up? Yeah. So obviously it depends on on what we're dealing with and the terrain and the area we're dealing with. But essentially, the first thing you have to do is find the end of the spill and stop the spread. So that involves, you know, containment booms or earthen berms or retention ponds that you can dig to start gathering product to keep it from continuing to spread out. So once you get the containment done, you're also focusing on the source at that point to try to try to contain the source, whether, you know, that's patching a leak or, or shutting down a pipeline or whatever that may be, you know, you've got to get your source shut down and you've got to get site containment. Then once you do that, you just start cleaning yourself, cleaning inward from that. So you set up different collection facilities, different collection locations. You start putting in either skimmers and you bring in bulk stores to store product and you start getting waste uh, profiles set up to get things out of there once they are cleaned up. And then you just start moving backwards cleaning up the product and remediating it, however that is done. And that depends on, you know, what is spilled and where it is and, and that kind of stuff. Okay. So typically let's take an oil spill. 
you obviously capture as much of the the liquid as you can as you said you put it you know maybe you put it in storage containers until the vacuum trucks arrive they take it and then they go and they dispose of it at a facility is that pretty common yeah that's pretty common i mean if it's crude oil a lot of times and it's clean and and skimmed and we collect it off of water the facilities can take that back and and reuse it clean it up a little bit and get it back in the production production line but you end up obviously with a lot of oil debris that you may have to get out and that kind of thing and and oily water so yeah it would typically go into on-site storage which is also an osro requirement for being osro you have to have access to certain amounts of on-site storage mobile storage whether it's frack tanks or mobile tanks or whatever you use for that yeah and typically a lot of vac trucks you know collecting that liquid, putting it in frack tanks, and then going out to either wastewater treatment or whatever disposal method you use. Okay. And what about the soil itself, where it ran before it got into the water? Yeah, there's a couple different things you can do with that. I mean, there's all types of technologies out there. Obviously, the the tried and true one is is digging it out and taking it to either, obviously, a landfill or a bioremediation land farming facility or something like that. But depending on the state, there are land farming opportunities in some states where you can take contaminated dirt and put it in a cell and turn it until right 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 you know because at the end of the day you know oil is organic so the bacteria and things will continue to eat it and it will remediate itself after a while but yeah there's soil there's some in situ things some people use chemicals they can mix in or additives or adjuncts that you move you can mix into the soil to kind of to do that same process in situ versus ex situ when you dig it out but it kind of depends on there is no one size fits all for most oil spills. That's what's another good thing about having a qualified Osro is they've probably seen something at least close to this so they can think outside the box and really find the best remediation method for your release at that time. I think that's a very good point because one size does not fit all. I think a lot of people make a mistake when they operate off of that <laughs> from that perspective, you know, so. Well, JT, again, I appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been very interesting. We'll be sure to include your LinkedIn contact information and website in the show notes so anyone listening can contact you directly for even more details. And I want to thank everyone for listening again. And again, I want to remind you this podcast would not be possible if it were not for our sponsor, Anderson Hauser. Please tell them thank you for sponsoring the show by going to our OGGN Anderson Hauser website, which you can find a link to in the show notes, and you can register for our monthly giveaway. Also, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, and that contact info you can find in the show notes as well. Finally, you can find in the show notes my LinkedIn contact info where you can message me directly. Please let me know what you're enjoying about the show and suggestions for content you might like to hear. Also, if you would like a direct source to Anderson Hauser, I can help arrange that. And if you're looking for a speaker for a conference or meeting, you can contact me about having one from our OGGN Speakers Bureau, including Mark LaCour and yours truly. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil & Gas HSE Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Anderson Hauser is your reliable U.S.-based partner for measurement instrumentation services and solutions. We are your people for process automation. Please leave us a review on iTunes, like us on LinkedIn, and use all of your social networking to tell your friends about us. And now, here's Savannah. We'll see you next time. 
Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's Networking Mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGDN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantage Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.